0: oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else deeply human for tuning into this episode of give and take my guests are david shields and bradley klein david is a celebrated and best-selling new york times author of many works including fairly recently nobody hates trump more than trump his old friend bradley klein is a golf expert he's a senior Writer for the Golf Channel and GolfAdvisor.com And a design consultant on golf course architecture around the world As an author, he's been collected by libraries worldwide And he's worked numerous times with President Donald J. Trump Before he was president He's even played golf with Trump So we thought it would be fascinating to talk about Trump uh, from this angle With an author who's written about him Somebody who knows him and yours truly, as we all stay sheltered in place in the age of Corona, I give you David Shields and Bradley Klein. David, Bradley, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. It's great chat again.
0: Yeah. Honor to be here, Bradley. You know, it's interesting. You were taught. We were talking before we started recording that you've told. Trump, Donald Trump, a joke about cryogenic freezing because
2: you've consulted on Trump's golf courses and stuff. Do you know him a little bit, right? Well, um, to be f- perfectly fair, I didn't work for him. I worked around him, with him. Uh, I was paid by somebody else, uh, or I was just covering him for my magazine. I was at the architecture editor at the time for Golf Week, and so roughly from a period of about 2006 to 2000. 13 uh, i was in his office maybe half a dozen times did photo shoots with him was on site uh flew around in his airplane several times uh, went over to scotland with him to the opening of his course stayed with the family i still keep uh his um cell phone along with ivanka eric and um in my phone just to show people because it's kind of fun and um we need to so put I- on my speaker and call him right now It's would be great Yeah. I haven't tried that. Um, I love that. uh, So like
1: you could call him right now and it's possible the phone number is still active. Uh,
2: I haven't tried it actually. I've been pretty disciplined, but I, I did when I, right after the election, I called his, I called Eric up to write a story. And I went down, met with Eric, uh, the son, the younger son. And, um, we, I have a photo that the AP took. We walked into the Trump tower building, uh, and walked right through and went up and spent a morning and, uh, It was a little embarrassing because I was up there uh, and um, Ivanka came over. She knows me or knew me then and gave me a big hug and I kind of backed off a little bit. I was a little taken aback. But I spent, you know, he used to call the house and I put him on speakerphone. My wife would sit there and laugh uh, because he was, uh, the only reason he called is because he was interested in in what are called golf course ratings. He wanted to be highly evaluated for the, uh, I think he owns about 17 golf courses. I was running a national or international uh, rating service. So I was pretty influential at the time. And um, so he was courting me like he did with everybody in the media. So I could set up meetings. Uh, I found him interesting. I have to say this was now before the politics, uh, or at least the overt stuff. This was uh he was basically uh, he was I think he was on The Apprentice at the time. I never watched The Apprentice. But I have to tell you that one story, he called me up once um, I'm, I was driving around Phoenix, he starts haranguing me about the ratings for his golf course. And he said at the time, well, who, who's your boss? I'll just, if I have to, I'll pull the ads out. I mean, I'll, you know, I, I spend 80,000 a year in advertising in your magazine. I'll just pull them out. And I said, Mr. Trump, I can't have this conversation with you. You're fired. <laughs> um, now, the interesting thing about Trump, I found him to be, this is again, 10, 12 years ago. I thought he was incredibly bright and perceptive and um, attentive to detail but completely nuts about something right next to it. So um, we were flying down in his plane to uh, Doral in Miami, and he had this long conversation um, with a, de- a decorator about the quality of the marble in the bathroom. And I, w- I was stunned by the, the, the attention to detail and the aesthetics. It's not an aesthetic I like. It's pretty tacky. It's kind of like a 60s bar mitzvah. But uh, <laughs> the uh, – He was very attentive. And then when when we got down to Miami, uh, the the first thing is we land – it was his plane. We land. And the next thing is all this traffic. And we have an escort, police escort from – I'm riding in his limo with him. And uh, I kind of thought, how does he arrange to get a police escort from the airport to his property? It's only about six miles. But he had police escorts and motorcycle cops the whole way. So he's breezing through traffic. We get there. One of the things he does, he starts haranguing the, the guy who's laying the cement cart, the, the cart path. It was some sort of, a, I guess it was a cement. And Trump is yelling at him and screaming about the color. It's off. And I realized what he's getting ready to do is screw him from paying him for the full contract. So he would do that all the time. So what struck me is uh, attention to detail, a real care and a complete uh, re- disregard for anything resemblance to the truth he would point to a fountain by the first tee and i think he told me it cost a million dollars he bought it from some schlock warehouse for like ten thousand bucks that kind of stuff he just make things up all the time and i I wrote at the time that he was the easiest person i'd ever had to write about i'm writing golf articles at the time because all you do is write down the crazy stuff he says and just produce it so as this this
0: is this is what howard stern would still says he was the best guy and exactly oh, for, for this, exactly for this reason, yeah. that was Stern's yeah. mentality. It was because it, he would say whatever would come to mind. No. He would, he would, he would get in these crazy conversations about how, you know, the real women, the real beauties aren't the Angelina Jolie's. They're the waitresses in New York restaurants. Like he would just go on and on about like, about all sorts of things. And, you know, and, and Stern was just like, it was, you know, stream of consciousness. It was the best radio he'd ever done.
2: Oh yeah. The, uh,
1: I mean I think that's really crucial. I mean I think in the book I try to argue for who are the key influences on Trump and certainly a big one is Roy Cohn and but a, just as important is Howard Stern. There's a I mean he has has many influences from his father to Cohn to to Stern but there's an exact space from Cohn which is never apologize, never explain, always be on the aggressive, never answer the question always be on attack, never apologize. And then he clearly learned from Stern. I mean, he has a huge he's a huge philo-semite. He's really obsessed with Jews and is he knows Jews are smarter than he is. And so he really learned from Stern is the only way to be entertaining is to say increasingly outrageous things like say, you know, I really want to fuck my daughter. Like that's good radio. Like it's interesting to say that. Like I would give anything to fuck Ivanka. Like you're not supposed to say that, but it's riveting. And in a way, it's all he's doing is increasing the stakes day by day, so that the now war on the virtual brink of civil war. And he couldn't care care less. He simply knows it's really good radio. It's really good TV.
0: Yeah. Now it's interesting that you say. I think that that the the thing about saying what comes to mind. it, it, it and you know it's funny because he and Stern, I think, have had kind of a falling out um, because Howard would say stuff like, well, apparently uh, Trump asked him to speak at the Republican National um, Convention when he was running, uh, which was a fascinating. I remember watching that convention and Scott Baio was speaking. And Brian Williams is going on, you know, like it's in that dignified voice. He's like, that was Scott Baio from Joni loves Chachi. (laughs) But, but, uh, apparently, uh, so Howard said, look, I, I can't, I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. And I have been since 2008, even when, you know, I voted for Obama, but I was always a Hillary Clinton supporter. I think she's gonna be a great president. And then he's sort of saying, Donald, and he's talking about this on the air. He said, I said, Donald, why the hell would you run for president? You have the best life. You're, you you, all the money you have, you fly to Scotland, you do this, you grab models, you're groping, but you're doing all that. You, you, you do whatever you want. He's like, Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, they 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 spend their whole careers to get a life like you have, and he's like, you're just going to be miserable. You're too thin-skinned for the job, and it's not going to be as fun as what you're doing now. And and Stern kind of stood by that, and I think Stern's right about that. I think that like it's not. I think the presidency probably seems like a real confining
2: thing for him, right? Absolutely, absolutely. sure. You know, he. I don't think he ran expecting to win. I think he ran because it was good for ratings. He was it it was going to be good for business. At the time, he gave himself a twenty percent chance, but he's clearly bored. Uh, he has no uh, attention to detail. So that 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 kind of ratings act, which works in one genre, doesn't work when you have a structure of power behind you. And what I find interesting, right, is the way in which his superficial—I I think he's profoundly superficial—to uh, to an art degree that is really something. It's a it's a little more complicated now because there are all these suspicions about drug addiction, Adderall, deterioration, you know, prefrontal, all that stuff. But uh, his, his sort of uh, fascination with himself as the main object, uh, it's kind of like an open, broken version of psychoanalysis right in front of you, breaking down and then reconstructing himself. But behind it now, un- unlike the, the facade of real estate or the media, there's a power structure, there's a government, there are people who, who are dying because of it. So it's dangerous now. It was entertaining and fun and, and crazy, but it was harmless. And now it's, it's deadly
1: that's it i mean i think those, those are a good points i mean the one thing that i as someone you know you guys are based you know i mean there's so much to unpack from what what brad said i mean i really want to explore the idea of trump as an untreated and untreated psychoanalytic patient that he's you know like i've like i've been in therapy the last six months and i've learned a lot and i had, had never been in therapy before and you know to me he's just comically readable like there's no, there's hardly an utterance he says which isn't readable as the most transparent confession of his yeah. own neediness his weakness his brokenness his father never loving him his mother never being present for him his unbelievably insecure ego his um his the fragility of his own existence, his profound nihilism. He's he's unbelievably afraid of dying, and is very aware that he that there is no point to existence. I think the hundred thousand people who have died registered not one iota to him. He could not care less. It means absolutely nothing to him, and. I guess I'd love to get into it the more the more as possible. You know, Brad has seen him up close probably dozens of times, like and you know, that we all have been watching him where I don't know if we can put some more pressure on this idea you guys of him as it's like he's conducting analysis every second of the day, but is utterly oblivious to the un, to the extraordinary revelations. And I do think the media and people, they don't know how to process it. I don't know if you guys can help me unpack it, but I find it utterly riveting.
2: Well, one of the points you make in your book, which I thought was really relevant, is that going after him or critiquing him because he lies is a complete waste of time, because that presumes that there's some clear truth that you can hold to that everybody else shares. That epistemology is dead. And Trump... uh, Knows that in his own completely untutored way. Here's a guy who's never read a book in his life, and he's the perfect embodiment of a kind of cheap postmodernism. So, and I I I saw that when he would say things just completely nuts, like uh, you know his golf course in Los Angeles was better than Pebble Beach because it had better views. It was a piece of junk, and he would just make this stuff up, and he didn't care. So it's it's a combination of shamelessness, not knowing. Uh, not connecting up at all. Um, so treating him as if he's lying holds to a standard that just doesn't work at all. And uh, it's a fascinating kind of breakdown of the public inability to to hold people to standards now, because uh, you know he, he's supported by a party that just sort of stands there. Part of the issue, I think, in a personal way, and I saw this and I experienced this: Trump doesn't trust honest people. He 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 only trusts criminals. He only trusts people who um, are are weak and whose uh, weakness he can pick out. He surrounds himself that way with the cabinet. So none of and he knows all of their crimes. You know, he's connected with Putin and with, uh, they've uh, downloaded all the emails of the Republican Party. He knows all about uh, Lindsey Graham and vulnerabilities. He does this, he tried this with Scarborough. So he exploits weakness and he can see that and he doesn't trust people who are actually law abiding. And that's really powerful. So it's a complete reversal of the normal standards of democratic discourse. And it's, you're right, it's the press has no idea that they, they've sort of started now a little bit, the serial questioning, following up rather than, you know, asking him and standing down, you have to confront him. And I think you did a great job in the book talking about he's a bully. You have to fight him. And bullies collapse pretty quickly. We see this now where he's challenged by Twitter. He's not challenged by the death of 100,000 people. It took him three months to do anything. He's challenged by Twitter. And in in, in a day, he completely rewrites FCC law regarding the Internet. Yeah, and, and
0: with, with, I have two thoughts on that. First, there's a, there's a book which I love. Uh, when I've taught undergrads, I, I, I wanted to make them read it before they were allowed to speak in class. It's called "On Bullshit" by Harry Frankfurt, and a former philosophy yeah, it's professor. Sort of
1: overrated. It's kind of overrated book, don't you think? I mean, it's got the world's greatest title, but is it a book? I tried to read it once. I thought I thought it was basically bullshit. I mean, well, I think it's. Do you like it is, more than
0: I do? I do, because I, he's got this point that there's difference between lying and bullshitting. And when we're bullshitting, we're not like he t- he quotes St. Augustine. Augustine says, "If if if you lie, you get some minimal moral form, formation because you have to." Familiarize yourself with the truth to cover it. Um, but when you're bullshitting, you don't have to because you don't know if it's corresponding, You know, it's it, it, you know what you're corresponding to or, or, or covering things up. And so I think for Trump, it, it is. It, there's these moments of lying and instinctive lying, and then just other bullshitting. And, and that's the kind of thing where you figure out where does the one begin or the other. Like, like I think when Obama said, "If you like your doctor, you're going to be able to keep them." Obama was bullshitting. I don't think he knew that. Like the the bill's massive. Um, but politicians have to do that sometimes because we're they're in the media all the time, and you just have to do that sometimes. And you're and you're saying something, and you don't really know if it's true or not. I think it's interesting because Trump it maybe breaks the thesis of this book because he's like kind of, he fuses lying and bullshitting in a strange, interesting way. That, 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 you're right; it does become incredibly challenging to figure out, you know, how you deal with that. I mean, and, what,
1: and, one thing I was i am sorry, Scott. Oh, No, so go ahead. ahead. I, I was just going to ask Brad you know, that who, you know, I don't know, you've probably have been in the same room or airplane with him, you know, what, you know, two or three dozen times, Brad. But, you know, like, I guess for me, the the tr- thing that I try to explore in, in my book is that I try to be relatively honest about my genuine admiration of him as a crazily gifted performance artist. I mean, the way I say it in the book is something like Democrats are playing badminton and Republicans are playing hockey. And I think it's a pretty good thing that, you know, Trump is obviously a killer, a bully. He's pathological narcissism. Here's here's little Chuck Schumer with his little granny glasses saying, excuse me, Mr. President, I don't think that's quite true. It's like, you fucking idiot. Do you not have the famous idea how to bring a fucking gun to the... Like, it's unbelievable to me how stupid, virtually all the democratic discourse is, I mean, capital D Democrat. And I just, I mean, I wonder if Brad, if you can talk a little bit and, you know, I can talk about it cause I've thought about it and Scott has thought about it a lot too, but like, you know, the sort of interesting question of Trump as for me, an unbelievably contemporary person, like in a way he's a deeply 21st century person in the way Joe Biden feels like he's from the 18th century. And you know, the whole question is, is Trump a genius? Is he an idiot? Is he a lucky schmenrick? I mean, Brad, I wonder if you could talk about him as an extraordinary gifted sort of kind of an insult comic or dark comedian or just, you know, if you have been in, around him as a performance artist and to what degree he's a genius, an idiot, lucky, yeah. stupid.
2: Well, the first thing is he's shameless. And so that's a really important thing. There's no inward looking whatsoever. Um, I'll give you an example. When I wrote uh, some reviews of his golf course, uh, they were very positive with a little minor criticism on one. He jumped all over it. Uh, I had conference calls, threats of lawsuits. They're going to pull ads. And I got nervous and it bothered me. And uh, I kind of had to, kind of bail out and get away from it just i couldn't handle it he doesn't have that problem he's he goes in full barrel with no self-consciousness i'll give you a great story though in terms of the performance art we're in scotland course opening of his course in northern just north of aberdeen and um there's a big fancy party for everybody and he says let's go over to the maintenance tent uh, because he wants to congratulate the staff about 50 people had worked on the golf course they got barbecue uh hamburgers this is in scotland is hamburgers and french fries and 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 soda he gets in there say, has everybody stop he says i want to thank everybody line up he pulls out a wad of fifty dollar bills this is in scotland he's got fifty dollar uh, u.s bills and he makes everybody stand in line and he walks by and he hands them a fifty dollar bill <laughs> and the superintendent who i knew was just cringing he was so embarrassed and at the end of this line because first of all they're eating hamburgers rather than the, the nice meal being served in, in in the fancy tent. And then he just talks on and on and on about how great he is and what he did and but the 50 dollar american bills was just astonishing. And then we go back uh to uh there's a that night there's a dinner. We're in a hotel with a fancy golfer Colin Mon- Mon- Montgomery and we have to go around the table and say something nice about Trump. So what I said is that I actually said this. I said, Mr. Trump, I think you're going to need a microphone in your coffin because the day after you die, the Royal and Ancient is going to grant you a British Open, meaning that they wouldn't do it to honor him when he's alive. But the golf course was pretty good. It works. should get a British Open, but they're not going to honor him. And I thought it was a pretty good line. He didn't think it was funny at all. But then he then he stops the whole thing and he brings over some hostess waitress who happened to be some Russian model and he talks about how gorgeous she is and how she's lost weight while she's working for him and what a stunning figure and he's just dressing her down in front of us it was just the whole kind of uh, shameless uh, performance uh, thing that day I've never forgot that I called up my wife that night I just simply said he surrounds himself with grifters and criminals and third-rate guys who run jewelry shops and used car lots in Miami. That was the whole the week that I got from that. But it was that kind of crazy juxtaposition of performance, gutlessness, sex, the sexism, the arrogance—all right there in one one weekend.
0: Yeah, I, the shamelessness I mean, thing it, is. It's key though, right? Because this is where politically yeah. it's powerful because yeah. you because normal politicians would be phased by being caught in these many lies and inconsistencies, but he's not, right? And so, right. and his supporters understand that. And so that's why his, you know, I think his 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 um, approval rating, you know, it doesn't get much above like 43 or 44, but it doesn't go b- below, you know, 37, 30. And, and I think part of the shamelessness when he goes to the rallies, right? I mean, and, and, and people participated. I, mean, I think, David, you and I talked about this when we first talked about your book. These guys, um, these critical theorists who I listen to their podcasts, and they were talking about enjoyment, you know, kind of like the death wish, the thing that you take this guilty pleasure in, you know, the Connie psychoanalysis sort of stuff. And they were saying Trump Trump supports, it's the politics of enjoyment. They're like, you can't enjoy Hillary Clinton. It's like eating your peas, Right. But Trump is like you know eating that awful thing for you that you love and you know you shouldn't do it and he's like these people know he's bullshitting and lying, but they're cheering as if the wall's really getting built because it's this kind of thing where there are partici- there's there's this, the, there's enjoyment in the psychiatric sense of his shamelessness and the supporters love it.
1: I think it's really crucial. It, you know, sort of uh, what? Yeah. That I mean, God, there's just so much to get to. One is like in Brad's story about the $50 bills, it's sort of like there's so many things, like in a way, he's punishing those people. And I guess what it's a powerful political gesture. You know, on some level, you think he's just a vulgarian who thinks, okay, I have $50 bills and I want to eat hamburgers and french fries. But on the other hand, how consciously is he saying, fuck you, and putting everyone under his proverbial thumb? I think that space is a little ambiguous, and I think Trump is brilliant at manufacturing that space, so you can't quite tell. Is he just a vulgarian who likes that? Or is he really saying, listen, you're going to kiss my ring, and then I'll hand you a $50 bill? It's obviously both. And then I think the big question is why this guy connects with some guy who's an out-of-work plumber in Little Rock, Arkansas. Like, that's the, that's the trillion-dollar question, here's this idiot, and or this kind of idiot savant, and how in the world does he have the support of tens of millions of people who share absolutely nothing with him? I do think it's the politics of resentment. He articulates for them, he embodies for them a rage at the chattering class, because he's not that chattering class person either. And I think he's you know, again, I don't know if he just lucks into it, if it comes from managing his father's properties in Queens, in which there is this huge resentment of being told what to do by the government and by people on the left and media culture. and But like, I don't know, if Brad, you can help us understand the ways in which Trump, who, you know, I mean, he's nowhere near the billionaire he pretends to be. I think that is what is in the IRS records. He's I think, I mean, Brad can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's not, has nothing like the wealth he pretends to have. But, you know, to me, the fascinating question is how, I mean, he's just one more dumb New York media creation, but how in the world that connects with Joe Sixpack in, you know, Joplin, Missouri, that's the trillion dollar question. I have certain ideas about it, which I've conjured up out of, Pure theory. There's this wonderful line in the book in which I say, I quote the uh, the British filmmaker, um, forget his name, that documentary TV f- filmmaker, it's on the, the tip of my tongue, but he basically says, in a shame culture, shamelessness gives you enormous leverage. And I think that's in a way an enormous key to Trump's success when you compare him to stammering Joe Biden and timid little Hillary. His shamelessness feels like virility, it feels like enjoyment, like jouissance, it feels like pleasure, and it feels like life against death, that he's very, very aware that there is no God, that we all die, and we've got to squeeze some pleasure out of life, whether it's you know grabbing a woman by the genitals or saying a bad word in the Oval Office like bullshit, or calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas when he's supposedly honoring Native American code breakers, and I think Scott, that you and I talked about this a little bit. You know that there are only two things: there's death and there's pleasure in life, and that Trump is very, very deeply nihilistic. He he knows that when we die, it's over, and that he he's squeezing a little pleasure out. You know whether it's women or extra piece of chocolate cake. I mean, that incredibly perfect thing. Everyone else gets a scoop of ice cream. Trump gets two. Like, that's it. That The whole thing is right there, that second scoop of ice cream. Um, but, you know, Brad and Scott, I'd love to hear your, your guys' take on how in the world this big, fat, dope, how does he connect with a lower-middle-class, blue-collar, out-of-work man or or woman in, you know— Arcata, california that is to me a fascinating question which i have my own ideas about but what do you guys think
2: well i th- i think there's a missing transmission belt here uh there's no doubt that he speaks to the degraded people who have suffered uh, declining incomes life opportunities you know he, uh, the, the high vote in areas where there's high suicide rate and, and drug use but the the, the key here is that this is very favorable to big business and certain extractive industries, which are big polluters, which want massive deregulation. And what he's done is he's he's convinced them that he can give them what they have desired for years that they never imagined. Ever since the civil rights movement and ever since the Great Society uh, programs, uh, uh, the, the uh, corporate tax rate has been under fire. And so what Trump has ab- been able to do is to deliver to the American Business class and the conservative, so called conservatives, what they never imagined possible, which is dismantling the welfare state, shifting income upwards, dismantling the regulatory apparatus, gutting OSHA, gutting all sorts of protections for people, uh, forcing people on their own. And so that, and, and there's unbelievable amount of money that is poured into the campaign to create that whole uh, aura and to, to fund. And you couple that with the Supreme Court decision to allow dark money into campaigns without regulation, as well as the dismantling the civil, uh, of the, the Voting Rights Act. You know, uh, a few years ago, the Supreme Court voted five-four that uh, the South didn't need careful monitoring. So now they've been gutting voting rights, they've been gutting uh, equal protection, they're gerrymandering in the state districts, and so it's a very important clause uh, connection there, which is that the populist sentiment and resentment. But it's linked up to, and that's why the Republicans are standing there. They're not saying a word. They're getting beyond. It's a big wet dream for them that they never imagined that they can control the courts and control tax policy and deregulate like they're getting now. And that's a really important. No,
1: I I agree. I mean, that's obviously a crucial point. That there's it's classic bread and circuses: bread for the rich and circuses for the poor. And obviously, I agree with you on all the stuff of the bread for the Koch brothers, but still unexplored hugely how does his act work so well with the very people whom his uh, actions are meant to further um, hurt and I think a lot of it is sort of WWE this thing called I think we talked about it earlier Scott this thing called what's the term in WWE where it's called something like Cova Fair or something in which the audience and the performers No, it's fake. Right, right. Yeah, yeah,
0: pro wrestling. Yeah, yeah. It's pro wrestling. Yeah, and that there's there's
1: immense pleasure. It there's an immense pleasure in both audience and performer understanding that we're in this theatrical space. You know, if you go to a, a rally and say "lock him up" or "lock her up," they haven't even done anything, and that. But it feels fun to say "fuck you" to you know the governing class. But I don't know. Can you guys help help me understand better I think it, why I think his it, act plays so well with you know some person whom he has zero connection
0: with? I, I think it's two things. So for one group, of, there's a group of people out there. For, for I think it's he's there. He's sticking it to the coastal elites for them, taking up for them, and and and, and sort of saying, you know, you're the, we're the real Americans. You know, we're not just flyover state. And the other thing I think is like for the religious crowd. I mean, I, I remember f- thinking, gosh, how are they going to justify this? They're going to like they're going to see him like Cyrus bringing Israel back into the promised land. Then they started saying it. <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, I should have written that up because they're really saying that." That's how they live with his kind of paganism and and you know, and they kind of were like, "Well, but, but he sticks up for he's God's champion appointed for us in a way that a lot of other Republican presidents haven't done." You know, they've courted the religious right, but haven't gotten in the face of the kind of of the coastal elite types and things like that. And he's willing to do that, and I mean, it's funny. I had George um, Barna on the show recently. He was a guy who, you know, he's a kind of like an evangelical Gallup pollster kind of guy. And he says he knows all these people that have no Trump in the religious world. And he says you know, that he actually genuinely, I mean, it's interesting. It sounds, Bradley, like they had these interesting experiences with him like you did. I mean, the, the stories he was telling me, I'm just like, this This is so interesting. But I think he f- he figures out a way To be the populist champion, meanwhile, just governing for the old sort of Republican elite. I mean, he does that incredibly well. Like he kind of, you know, so he gets the party support and rallies the the populist base in in a way that I don't think any Republican has been able to do in in recent memory. I mean, the main thing he. Yeah. I mean, to me, what? Well, anyway, Brad, jump, jump
2: in. I was going to say that there's still something missing about the, the sort of magical appeal of that. And I, I that's partly the skill of any fascist leader uh, with a microphone or a mass crowd at Nuremberg rallies. Um, and um, th- there is somehow, I guess, a suspension of disbelief, but there's something in the evangelical community in particular about the, no- the nihilistic, the apocalypse, uh, the doom, the, the lack of a teleology, the lack of a sense of empathy laterally in everyday civil society. There's no and I think that's shared there. I think they pick up on that. His his inauguration speech was an incredible dark image. A I, incredible I heard image. it was better in the original German, or maybe or maybe it was the original Italian. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a pretty dark, gloomy. And what's fascinating, no one has really explored the the connection between a particular form of Has of uh, Chabad uh, Orthodox Jewry and evangelical movement, which sees Israel as the center of that coming apocalypse, and so. He's willing to go places that no one has ever gone in the, uh, in, in the Republican Party. I don't think it's anything to do with old mainstream conservatism. This is not Robert Taft or, or Rockefeller. This is uh, uh, Father Coughlin. This is uh, the, the kind of darkest paranoid elements. Uh, and I don't quite get it, but it's somehow, and I think this, is, this might be accidental, David. This is partly, you know, I think he just sort of works, he works the crowd. He works the room, and he found he found it. It worked. And this is a guy who supported Hillary Clinton' Senate run. Was a registered? Was donating to the Democratic Party, but it didn't turn the room on like the the kind of dark uh, imagery that he cultivated. And mm-hmm. I, he's he's had his best when he's standing there for two hours, completely out of his mind, just blithering. <laughs> right.
1: No, it's it's. I mean, there's. I mean, again, I like for instance, one thing he really understands that a lot of people on the left and center left and in the media and in political discourse uh, don't understand he really understands that politics now has become completely symbolic theater that he understands people just live or die for the theatrics of it and that I mean I'm just sort of saying what you guys have already said but for instance the the, one he says recently about Minneapolis what was his latest thing, you know, where he had this rhyming thing, where you know, basically, if you continue to protest, you'll be shot. I forgot the exact.
0: If if you start to loot, uh, we will start to shoot, or something like that. When the looting starts, if you it was a,
2: when the looting starts, yeah. the shooting starts. Yeah, exactly. By the way, he got yeah, that but, from the mayor of uh, Miami. The, uh, the Miami mayor in 1967 yeah. came up with that phrase to describe it. But yeah, I he see. Picked up on that. I it's see. a song. It's a lilt. It's a kind of a suspension and that's and, and like that, yeah
1: and that it's you know it's sort of like i mean i'm trying to think of what i'm trying to get to other than i mean that he what is his psychic i mean that he's you know to me he's like a great modernist anti-hero you know whether it's notes from underground whether it's um you know uh who was the woman who wrote those you know that he you know he fa- he famously has you know, a number of people have reported that he had all of Hitler's speeches as his bedside reading for years. And he was upset when someone pointed that out. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, he has studied that stuff carefully. And I think what interests me a little bit among is the psychic space, where, you know, he's just, you know, that he's trying, he feels that that nothing matters. He's a deeply nihilistic person. He's aware that when he died, he has never loved anyone. He doesn't love himself. He doesn't believe in any purpose other than momentary, tiny moments of pleasure. And I think there's a way in which that really does register with the ordinary population in the sense that I think so many people have lost their sense of purpose, that you know, I I think that Scott, I think, is religious. I'm not in any way religious. I don't think Brad is. But, you know, that I I happen to believe in art a lot. I believe in the history of art and civilization and literature. And that happens to be my little religion, but it's a little bit of a manufactured religion. But, you know, I think so many people in, you know, a post-internet, post-religious culture, they have utterly lost any sense of meaningful existence. And then I think Trump expresses for them a kind of dance in the abyss. I think he's an utterly broken, utterly wounded, utterly lost, utterly nihilistic individual who gets, like, it's fun to say really nasty, really naughty, really obscene, really racist, really sexist thing. Like, it just feels good to transgress to say, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting begins or you know, you can just think of endless examples like it's it's fun that we that we will be dead soon enough and that it's important to squeeze, i mean it's that line from flannery o'connor you know, a good man is hard to find in which she says, you know, the what's the line and a good man is hard to find, you know, if someone had had a gun at your head the whole time That you I forget how she says, but you know, you would have enjoyed life a little more. I think there's a sense in which Trump is aware that there is a gun pointed at his head. He will be dead and, you know, soon enough. He has no belief in anything. And I think that connects very profoundly with an average person who has a crummy job, is aware of the internet, is aware of coastal elites. And I don't know, I guess I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I just think that unbelievably profound connection he has with ordinary people is this zany nihilistic dance in and around and on top of the abyss. I don't know if you guys agree with that, if you can build on that, if you want to push back against that. I think this politics of nihilism is unbelievably moving and unbelievably powerful, unbelievably resonant and utterly new in American political discourse. And you compare that to these dopes like Schumer or Clinton or Biden, they feel like they're riding a fucking tricycle. And Trump is zooming around in his in his nihilistic 2020, you know, Jetsons machine. Um, What do you guys think of all that?
2: The the one part that I'd be a little careful about, he certainly speaks to the sense of nihilism. But part of the issue is that American jobs suck and they've gotten worse, and incomes have gotten worse, and the life conditions, you know, this is the first generation uh, that uh, their kids are not going to be better off than they are. So we've had a shrinkage of income distribution. People are more indebted. It's more difficult. Uh, the the ecology is falling apart. That's why, interestingly enough, there's such a kind of overlap between the Bernie Sanders and Trump support because it could be taken either way. Now, Bernie Sanders, in his own kind of... Uh, vacuous uh, ideological way speaks in an old-fashioned way speaks to that kind of rage but it's much easier to 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 populate it with the kind of cartoon-like imagery and sensibility that trump has but trump has his understanding that for most people towns have been destroyed you know shopping community uh, the sanctity of a sense of extended family uh, uh, availability of health care quality of education all that stuff has been d- destroyed and people are really frustrated and raged. Now, he's got a funny way of. He's not really interested in solving any of that stuff, uh, you know. But he's the fact that he can identify and speak to it and tell people he understands that. I think that that he's got a powerful sensibility. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah it's a, quite, quite popular. Yeah, thing. the Sorry. thing
0: that I think you're right, you're exactly right. I think what's interesting that if you look at like the. European populist parties, right? The nationalist kind of populist parties. They're xenophobic. They they have these racist undertones and overtones and things. But they actually promise the people stuff socially. Like they well, actually. So it's like here in America only in America can you get the nationalism without the socialism. So it's sort of like he, it's almost just like he preys on on the anger and, and gets people feeling alienated and worked up about Muslims and Mexicans, or these people are or the liberals, or you know, you would own the libs, also but doesn't offer any like it's almost like and that is enough. I mean, I think if for a lot of the yeah. populist base, that's enough that he just he lets me get he validates my rage and despair and frustration. Like I think you're absolutely right about that. That that's the payoff. It's not it's not my like life getting better. It's validating my anger and despair about it being shitty.
1: Well, that's what a, fr- a friend of mine who grew up very near the the lower middle class Queens housing projects that. Fred Trump and Donald Trump and the Trump family, you know, owned, you know, thousands of apartments in in lower middle class, some of them in you know, around Corona Queens and all kinds of areas around lower middle class blue collar Queens of the 50s, 60s and 70s. And this friend of mine who who grew up in and around those projects, he says it's it's important not to underestimate the degree to which Trump political rhetoric derived from his experience in those projects, that he could see how much white, lower middle class, blue collar mm-hmm. resentment was built up over government regulation, over quote unquote black crime, over being pushed out by um, bureaucracy, about certain parts of the apartment complexes having to be reserved for black occupants, and that in a way, so much of, in in my friend's view, and I actually quote him in the book a little bit, is that Trump learned how to build the politics of resentment, symbolic resentment through his experience on and as this, you know, in quasi-enforcer of the <clears throat> Fred Trump properties. I think it's an interesting point. I think one thing I want to talk about a little bit, is what, you know, what is just unbelievably broken about Trump? I mean, there's something, we've talked about his shamelessness, his nihilism, his symbolic performance art, but like what, you know, I try to do a sort of a drive-by psychological reading, you know, I read dozens of books about him and a few books sort of putatively written by him, which, of course, he didn't write or even read a word of, but, you know, what, I don't know, Brad. If you have any up close observations, I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of psychoanalytically oriented, and all, but like, do you have any sense of what? And I offer some tentative sort of theses in the book vis a vis mother and father. There's a fascinating sort of loop in which he wants the media. Like, he spends the day watching himself on the TV, and then he tells Fox what to do. There was this amazing moment recently in which Fox told him. Donald, if you are watching now, turn the lights on and off in the Lincoln bedroom. So the Fox cameras watch Trump turn the lights on and off in the Lincoln bedroom. Like, what? That is the weirdest fucking thing that's ever happened at 60. 60- yeah, yeah, the Lincoln
0: the Lincoln bedroom. I mean, that's that's uh, I'm surprised he got up and walked down the hall, though. Or Maybe he had somebody else go down the hall and do it for him.
1: Or maybe he said, you know, Donald, that you're in the such and such room turn the the lights on and off anyway this endless sort of feedback loop which is like utterly out of the lacanian mirror stage it's like he was it's like he's trapped at age three months and has never gotten beyond the mirror stage but i guess what is interesting for me like i just you know i it's just fun to talk to brad about like do you have a do you share my sense brad about how utterly broken this human being is and do you have any tentative sort of theses about what it is about him that's broken, or do you not even view him as as utterly wounded as, as I do? And the way in which I think that woundedness hugely resonates with the population, which is equally broken for perhaps different reasons. Whereas Obama pretends to be this sort of enlightened, evolved human being, and he's fundamentally boring. Whereas Trump is broken, I do think people connect with that in a really powerful way.
2: Uh, I think they're getting tired of it, though. I mean, one of the nice things about Obama as president is you didn't have to watch the news or you didn't have to escape the news every day. So that was actually reassuring. I, I, there's so, a lot but I'm of, talking
1: about like, yeah. I don't find Obama boring. I mean, well, I kind of do. But basically, all I mean is why the 45 million find Trump exciting is that he's he's broken as they are in my
2: view. Well, uh, there's a lot of interesting speculation in your book about uh, his completely fractured relationship with a cold mother who was uh, on her deathbed for a while anyway, during his uh, early youth, and then really wasn't there in terms of a sense of warmth. Uh, and uh, and then her father, who was completely cold and domineering, the two moments that I think uh, it resonates is when he, as you point out, he visits his mother's cottage uh, in the hebrides islands and is is there for 93 seconds and walks out and then when he's uh, at school at Penn, uh, he goes to a baseball game and he's wearing a kind of slovenly whatever shirt and his father slugs him in the hallway and makes him put on a suit and tie i mean that's just kind of abusive not just kind of it's it's an incredible kind of uh, inability to connect so there's that uh you know uh, what the, some of the psychiatrists i've been reading on trump talk about his uh, malignant narcissism uh but um All I can tell you is that he just has no connection ability to relate. He doesn't listen. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, He had asked me to, uh, I was going over Scotland quite a bit. Um, My wife was working there and I was, I went to see the site that he was going to build the golf course and he was in a big uh, uproar with the government. And I went and walked the site in its raw form before the golf course was built. I came back and I was in his office. I have a photograph uh, of this when I'm, I'm standing there talking and we're looking at a map. I said, Mr. Trump, your golf course, it's in a beautiful setting, but it's the coldest spot on the northeast coast. You got early morning horror, the fog. You get early afternoon sunset because the Grampian Mountains, the golf course is too severe. There's no relenting of the holes. It's going to be unwalkable. And he just looked at me and, uh, well, he didn't even look at me. He just kept He said, it's going to be the greatest golf course in the world. What do you know? So there was no, and it was in a simple transactional mode. I can't imagine what it's like for national security people to brief him about a pandemic or, you know, an incoming strike because he he gives it the same lack of connectivity. So there's no connection. The other thing that's just uh, terrifying, and you point this out in your book, is his lack of, uh, he doesn't laugh. How does someone tell jokes and not laugh or make himself a joke and not laugh? he never has there's no sense of humor he's deadly serious and he talks about that uh, you have all of these great citations with howard stern in which he talks about how if he's ever slighted he never forgets it he never gives up
1: so and that suggests such a brokenness like if you cannot laugh at yourself yeah. you know it's like that's so fragile you know and that you know i you know, everyone says the progenitor i think it's slightly dubious, but the progenitor of his, you know, he's obsessed with Obama, supposedly, where, you know, Obama told some some rather mild jokes at the press, at the White House Press Association that were somewhat mocking toward uh, Trump, like, you know, Trump was doing important things like, you know, choosing the, the next apprentice while Obama was taking down Osama. And apparently that that really, that really rankled him. It does suggest an Unbelievably fragile ego. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is that I'm almost out of batteries. Do you want me to recharge, or are we almost done, Scott? I can I can either put my um, computer to make sure that I have plenty of juice, or are we? You know, I don't know. I'm fine chatting, but I just I want to get up and and put a uh, a cord in in my you can go put my laptop. If we're going to be talking.
0: Yeah, yeah I'll just okay. keep asking Bradley about you, you guys.
1: You guys keep talking, Brad. I'll be back back in a second.
0: So Brad, let me ask you this:
2: His golf game? Yeah, I have played golf with him, by the way.
0: What kind of, what kind of, like, like, what kind of handicap is he? Is he, is he, is he a good ball striker? Does he putt well? I mean, what is his golf game like?
2: Well, first, I played golf with him in 2000, uh, and then since then, I've watched him a little bit, on and off. Now everything's changed because he's obese, and uh, you know it's hard to know what's going on now. But uh, he was a very decent golfer. Uh, he hit the ball a long way. I was surprised. He got a lot of power. He has a good turn. Uh, and he's got an unbelievable short game with putting. So if he played by the rules, which he never does, he would probably be about an eight or nine handicap. Oh, wow. So wow. You know, he consistently would shoot, but I don't think he's ever played around in which he actually played by the rules of golf. And so that extends both to his actual round. This I saw once his handicap sheet. And it was all a score a bunch of scores. He might enter have entered one or two scores a year over seven, eight years, and it was all 72, 73, 74. So I, I may have it wrong, but he manufactured statistically something like an index or a handicap of about 2.4 or three. Wow. But it's really about eight or nine, which is respectable.
0: Oh, it's a great. yeah, eight or nine, I
2: mean. But he never played by the rules. There's a whole book about that that Rick Riley wrote about the, the cheater in, um, command, uh, cheater, what is it? Uh, cheater in chief about his wayward golf game. So, you know, he's a guy who enjoys golf, fine. But um, he's got to do everything in a certain way. Uh, and uh, he's just macho about his design. I remember we uh, we were standing on the first hole of his course in West Palm Beach. And um, he said to me, we stared on the back tee of this hole. It was like... 480 yards long and he says isn't this the hardest most difficult i said mr trump if it's that hard you shouldn't be playing from this t i mean i would play from the middle t make it a little less demanding and he looked at me like you wimp you know so he had it was all macho culture alpha male stuff and so he had a win he had a. Uh, and now here's the big difference everybody says bill clinton cheated the difference is that clinton announced that he was cheating he cheated in front of you he said uh, but he didn't claim to shoot certain scores. He didn't post scores. He didn't win nine club championships on the basis of cheating. In fact, if he played, Clinton played like a lot of people play. But that's not cheating if you announce, "I'm going to violate the rules here, take a mulligan." Doesn't matter. He just played casually. Whereas Trump cheats and then convinces himself that he's being honest, and that's the difference. Uh, what's your What's your handicap like, Brad? Uh, At thirteen point seven is my index right now. What was it when you p- played with Trump? Uh, it was about fourteen, maybe. I, I played terribly the first few holes, and then I kind of found my rhythm. I was a little, it was nervous. I was jumping. It was a little. He was it took me a, a little while to get used to his banter because we met him at Mari Lago, uh, and then went over to the, the golf course. And uh, but uh, you know, he, I played with a lot of people. He, he's a decent enough player. Fine. He's actually probably better than most golfers, but he has to be better than that. And so in that sense, he cheats everything. So,
0: um And, and if you're going to play with him, you just have to accommodate the, to this, right? I mean, that's oh, what yeah. I've heard. Like yeah, sure. everybody just, you know, whether you're a politician. In fact, in that book you were talking about that the guy wrote about uh, cheater and chief whatever, he says like people just kind of cheat for him, right? Like kick his ball out of the rock. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that's, no, that's yeah. the fascinating stuff that not only that he does it, but people just know that this is what you have to do. You just,
2: well, it gets really dicey when, uh, it's a matter of matches at club championships when, uh, it's done or he gets a buy into the second or final round or it's a rain out and he claims that he won when they never played. And so you have people covering for him. That's when it's really,
0: I mean, what uh, do people do when he cheats in the club championship and they want to win the club championship? I mean, do they call him on it or are they just like,
2: uh, I don't, I don't know. The, uh, so you, you, you play for another flight. <laughs>
0: So people just kind of, that's the thing that's fascinating to me, that people just kind of, if you're competitive and you want to win and you know he's cheating, like, you know, what do you, you know, you're, and yet you accommodate to that. That's just crazy.
2: Well, it reminds me, um, I was in Cuba in uh, 1997 <laughs> on a tour and um, we were meeting government officials and I was asking them about people who gave advice to Castro. And I said, does anybody ever tell him no? And they say, well, you can say it once. Yeah. <laughs> Then you're gone. So that's what happens. He he doesn't listen to people. He doesn't want to listen to. So he surrounds himself. And he, you know, it's one thing to do it on a golf course. It's it, but when you do it with the cabinet, and when you do it with a coronavirus, uh, now you, now you're talking serious stuff. So.
1: But I mean, how does he have that much that much leverage? I mean, I think you had mentioned. I mean, it's a good like I've always felt that. And I sort of implied it in the book about Lindsey Graham. To me, he's the kind of person, you know, that, that Lindsey Graham is the sort of, yeah. of least closeted, closeted homosexual in American politics. But he's that I would, you know, I would I, I even sort of summarized that, you know, or I sort of speculate that maybe, you know, Trump would make that explicit with him where he would find again, I'm just guessing and I don't mean to out lindsey graham but i just think you know that trump would incorporate that and like how would he have that much leverage in all of these situations in the sense of i mean i'm really interested in sort of bully psychology in my professional and personal and academic life i happen to have dealt with you know a handful of just classic psychopathic bullies and it took me a long time to understand them and their exact psychology. I mean, it's a real psychological type that, like, they have twelve characteristics, and they all have it, kind of like FBI profiles of serial killers. They just have these twelve characteristics, and like to me, just because I've studied who bullies are because of of my dealing with them in academic and professional life i kind of feel like i get trump in ways like he just is you know behind every bully is a muling baby is the way i think i say it in the book and he is one big baby you know and i think trying to think of what we can do to like i don't know i just try to explore the nature of being a bully like i think this amazing example I mean, obviously, the examples are virtually daily, but, you know, there's this example in the book where I think or maybe it came out after the book where there's like an attractive female CBS reporter who tries to get up in the Rose Garden and ask him a question. And he, 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 he calls on her and she wasn't quite prepared to ask the question. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't quite prepared. And so he just sort of yells at this Mm 27-year-old reporter, of course you weren't prepared. You're never prepared. Like, that's just fucking weird. Like, that's no American. I mean, can you imagine Obama doing that or even Ronald Reagan or even George Bush? I mean, it's like it's so unheard of in American political discourse. It is an entirely new thing. But it must be it must be delivering something. What it delivers is its rage at female beauty. And like that in some unconscious way that resonates so powerfully with old men who can no longer have access to such female beauty. There's rage at something called CBS, which at least is nominally part of some kind of elite media discourse. And it's expressing so much unexpressed fury at whatever you want to call it i mean that's just i mean that's an absolute cardinal example for me who else would say that let alone in our lives but in political life to rail at someone a third year age with absolute venom like that is delivering major dopamine to every person in joplin missouri it just is I think that's absolutely crucial, in my view.
0: It, it, on the bully thing too, that connects with something I think Bradley you were saying earlier about how he r- surrounds himself with these kind of people that are corrupt and criminals. So then you have the leverage, right? Like if you're surrounding yourself with people like that, you can bully all the time, right? You know, you you, you kind of you 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 build a, a network like that for a reason, so that you do have all this leverage, right?
2: Well, um, don't underestimate the extent to which. He is aware of your vulnerability. The other thing he tries to do is to corrupt you by seducing you into his orbit. So he—I tr- mean—they tried to do that with me. They offered me to write articles. They pay me for this and that. And I realized, no, I don't want to be implicated because it's a conflict of interest for one thing. But then it becomes a point of vulnerability. Now he makes a living out of that, and you know, you look at the connections between Betsy Voss and Blackstone Group and Ross in the, the Car- Department of Commerce in München. Uh, in treasury and their connections to deutsche bank and then the 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 supreme court judge they got to retire early uh he don't forget he also uh, has access when he got the dump on the democratic national committee emails he also got the republican national committee emails which we've never seen so he's actually aware of whatever scandals and vulnerabilities and weaknesses we all have everybody has them to some degree now some of us are just personal part of their insecurity part of them are open political scandals but he has access and i had no doubt that he calls them in and and shakes them down and lets them know in one form or another that uh if you don't comply you know this is going to be made public and it, it, i think people crumble pretty fast i think most people have a sense of uh, a sense of inner vulnerability and complexity to them he doesn't that's the key the shamelessness the old outwardness uh, well, I think David, you call it his sort of always being in the present moment. There is no past. There is no guilt or or sorrow. Here he is. A hundred thousand people dead. Not one word ever of having felt or experienced or shared any kind of humility. Or so that's a very powerful. Now, um, I think he uses that, and I think that's classic mob shakedown strategy. That's classic organized crime, and so. What I find interesting is he's not only a performer, he's also a criminal. Um,
1: those are all, I mean, those are all great points. I mean, I think, what was I going to build on? There was something um, that Brad said that I wanted to tease out a little more. I mean, one thing on hydro- hydroxychloroquine that, you know, he has financial connections to that. He just does. They're they're slightly tertiary, but they are are real. Everything has financial payback and i love and when he says I mean, that I mean, and
0: the, the doctors just stand there and have to look at him like oh yeah he's taking like, like if he'd have been like oh yeah i'm drinking bleach uh, two or three times a day and i just preventively, and the doctor would have said well it's not the kind of it's presidential bleach this isn't clorox i mean where it's a medical bleach. you know what i mean it's like that's the thing that's also so so painful to watch is people just sitting there and having to go along with all this i mean it's just it's so awful
1: I mean, where are the heroes? I mean, where is that guy at IRS who just presses send and sends out the all of Trump's tax returns? I mean, it's just amazing. Well, and yeah, I think everything Brad said, is, everything Brad said, is just classic bully behavior. It just is. And so I think um, also, what was it that Brad said? I wanted, but anyway, um, Brad or Scott, anything else you wanted to push on?
2: Well, you know, don't underestimate the uh, threat of losing your job and your career. That's reality winner who blew the whistle on, uh, I think it was the elections. She's in jail. Lots of people have lost their job. They get fired. Now, some of them actually getting fired is a badge of honor, like Preet Bahara, the, uh, the the uh, attorney from the New York city, New york's uh, Southern district who becomes a kind of a media celebrity. Some of them could, right. but it's tough. It's tough to come out of that uh, with your with your dignity. You become harassed. You become subject to, uh, uh, death threats, journalists who have exposed some of the san- uh, um, Sarah Kenzior, for example, uh, suffered death threats writing about this kind of stuff. So it takes a real courage to do it. And it doesn't help that the law does not support you. They have the Justice Department lined up, they have the Senate lined up. So you don't have the, no- you know, you look at all the people who, those dignified people who spoke at the impeachment hearing about Trump's. Uh, and, and and the strange ties to the Russians, uh, the, uh, the the national security analysts, the Russian specialists, all of them lose their jobs. They're all watch. watch. They all either retire or they're marched out of the White House. So you have to uh, you have to confront that when you're about to become a hero. And that's not easy to do. Now, there are some who could do it. Romney, a little bit here and there, but not much. Most of them have no. Gun. I think it's a
1: really good point that the, the most people are are craven that most of us aren't particularly courageous i think it's a crucial point that trump thrives amidst chaos there's an amazing line where somebody asked him something like how do you how do you handle being inside of the media storm all the time and he basically said i am the fucking storm like i am the storm that most people like if i i don't know like i let's say i have a book come out and i do a little radio interview or something i I spend, you know, like a week recovering from the radio interview or whatever, whatever. But it's sort of like, like, to me, it's an amazing line of narcissism, of pathology, of seeing yourself absolutely one with the media lens. I am the storm. You could see how essentially shy that Hillary Clinton is, how essentially interior Obama is, you know, how essentially really tongue tied Biden is. whereas. Like there's almost there's a really powerful sense for Trump is that if he's not on TV, he's not alive. If he's not in front of a Nuremberg rally, he's not alive. And so he is the storm. You know, that wonderful line in uh, The Last Detail where Jack Nicholson says, I am the fucking border patrol. Like, you know, that's Trump. He is the fucking border patrol. And anyway, I think that's really how much he either he seems to thrive in chaos because he knows there is no safety net. He knows, you know, again, I do return to him as a bit of a modernist or postmodernist anti-hero who in a way is willing to own his own nihilism. You know, I'm I'm working on a a film called How Do You Know What You Believe with three other friends in which we're trying to track sort of the beginning of sort of Nietzschean and Dostoevskian and Melvillian subjectivity and the death of God through Derrida, through Saussure, through a whole series of postmodern and poststructuralist thinkers, to, as Brad said, like the cheap postmodernism of Trump. I mean, I think there's an undeniable line between the theoretical, academic, intellectual discourse from, let's say, Nietzsche all the way through Derrida is one huge immersion in subjectivity and, in a way, meaninglessness. And what uh, what our film tries to argue through uh, a literary conference that we attended is that, and this is not exactly news, but we're trying to tease out every every nuance, how Trump, Bannon, Miller, Conway, et al. have rather brilliantly weaponized, in my view, all this postmodernism, mirrors beyond mirrors beyond mirrors. It starts with the inauguration. Yeah, no, no, those photographs aren't true. Our inauguration was in fact bigger than Obama's. Like there is no reality. And when we look back on it, it now, he couldn't have fired a more overt starting gun to his to to his presidency. There it was on day one. That photograph that you just saw. No, that is meaningless. That's fake news. That's the failing New York Times. And then for the last two and a half, three years, it's been simply an incremental uh, e- extension so that now we're in unbelievably deep, deridian space.
0: Well, and you don't know. you see this inversion too of, of, of values and tribes? Like for decades, you had the cultural right worried about. Postmodern relativism, kind of armchair postmodern relativism, multiculturalism, and there's no truth and all this stuff. And and the left was more of the perspectival. Now the right has embraced the kind of uh, crass armchair relativism, right? And then and you have the the left going trying to come on, let's get some old, old school, old fashioned objectivity back.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> so the, core, that's the core. That crazy film. that you've ca- that's exactly what the film is about. Is I mean, I do I think if you if you, if you get in bed. With Foucault, you end up with Steve Bannon. Like, not exactly, but you know, that contradiction, that hypocrisy is one I want to explore even within myself. You could argue a book of mine like Reality Hunger argues for the shifting tectonic plates of what's real and what's not. And without exaggerating the influence that book might have had, there's a sense in which Trump is taking reality hunger. And making it reality winner, and we end up with you know with no more reality.
2: Uh, I think Bannon actually is somewhat familiar with some of the literature that you're talking about, totally totally and he understood the others are not. They understood its use right and 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 the nice thing that they understood, unlike a Foucault who had an ethic and a sense of humanity and a sense of power relationships, is that uh, the Bannon kind of deconstruction, which he openly touted was simply if you just keep people confused and off balance and keep throwing things at them, you don't have to actually offer anything. And, and, and the model for that is we're going to take away Obamacare and replace it with something. They've had 10 years to replace it. They haven't come up with anything. It doesn't matter. They keep persisting in, in that destruction. And you don't have to create a new epistemology. All you have to do is create radical doubt and make it a kind of aesthetically pleasing engagement uh, or at least uh, an entertaining one and uh, it seems to kind of function, at least to keep people in a cloud. I think he's I think, way above his Republican uh, allies in this. I think they're just sort of stunned by all of this and go along with it because they get what they want out of it, but they have no idea how to produce it.
1: And in fact, in the book, I point out how so many of Putin's original political advisors, I think he was, basically had a degree in performance art and in, yeah. in sort of clown art. And he basically taught Putin how... Forget what he called it. Something like, um, what's the term, Brad? You probably know it. Where it's basically a war between two com- parties that are, are not equal. Anyway, the whole idea that tr- that Putin learned from his basically clown advisor, who just just endlessly dazzle them with bullshit. You present new mass upon mass upon mass upon mass. After a while, everyone just gives up. Who knows? what's real and trump at all have obviously accomplished something like that
2: and, and the the important point also historically is that the media culture facilitates that because you can put up false videos on twitter and you can't distinguish what's real from what's not uh the media uh, cable tvs are desperately looking for video that looks and shows violence and attraction and transformation rather than stability and order it's much easier to show that than to show you know the depredations of climate change for example so when you're feeding into what they want that you know and the amazing thing and all through in 2016 the election you'd have cnn and msnbc and everybody were covering every one of those rallies simply because it was good ratings it made for good tv cool. so, and that was i mean
1: there's a also, the false equivalence, you know, of NPR and New York Times. I mean, the uh, utter, there's that wonderful line. I, I may quote in the book by um, Mussolini, who calls the Italian people something like, he says, it with amazing attributes. Carnival-esque. carnivalesque. Yeah, he says that we, we are a childlike, unsophisticated, uh, basically brain-dead, carnivalesque people. It's like, whoa. Mussolini got it in about four words. And I think Trump profoundly understands what an unbelievably carnival-esque animal the human is, and how maybe particularly carnival-esque the American human is. And boy, anything, you know, is, you know, that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's part of the why, you know, he trots out Melania, like because she's attractive, you know, and like he just he just I mean, just to take the most obvious case. And just the comically the comic way in which almost everybody he hires, say his most recent press secretary looks like, you know, a Playboy buddy or whatever, just because she's, you know, she's eye candy. And even if he hires somebody like, you know, Pence, because he looks like uh, a weatherman from the Midwest with well combed hair. I mean, he just understands what an amazingly visual people we are. There's that famous example during, I think it was Reagan's campaign, where 60 Minutes ran a Reagan campaign ad and showed how the rhetoric of the images was at utter odds with the reality on the ground, and the moment that 60 Minutes aired the footage, the Reagan administration called them up and said, thank you for this unbelievable report, which you guys thought was critical of us. But no one pays attention to words. They pay attention to images. And you guys just ran for us Morning in America visual rhetoric. You fucking idiots. You just did our job for us. And in a way, here we are 40 years later, like obviously a thousand times more that way. I think that Trump profoundly understands how visual that we are. And I don't know. It's really, really amazing, scary performance art magic.
0: Well, guys, we've said it all. Uh, We really have. We
1: fucking nailed it.
0: This was great. And uh, let's do it again sometime.
1: Thanks a lot, Scott, Brad. It's great to see you, man. I hope that we yeah, I had a great
2: time. Yeah. Thanks so, so much, I- guys. Rather than stability and order, it's much easier to show that than to show, you know, the depredations of climate change, for example. So when you're feeding into what they want, that, you know, and the amazing thing and all through in 2016, the election, you'd have CNN and MSNBC and everybody were covering every one of those rallies simply because it was good ratings. It made for good TV. So that was- I mean, there's
1: a, also the false equivalence, you know, of NPR and New York times. I mean, the other, uh, there's that wonderful line. I, I may quote in the book by um, Mussolini who calls the Italian people something like, he says it with amazing. Carnivalesque.
2: Carnivalesque.
1: Yeah. He says that we, we are a childlike unsophisticated, uh, basically brain-dead carnival people. It's like, whoa, Mussolini got it in about four words. And I think Trump profoundly understands what an unbelievably carnival-esque animal the human is, and how maybe particularly carnival-esque the American human is. And boy, anything, you know, is, you know, that, you know, I mean, it's, You know, it's part of the why, you know, he trots out Melania, like because she's attractive, you know, and like he just he just I mean, just to take the most obvious case. And just the comically the comic way in which almost everybody he hires, say his most recent press secretary looks like, you know, a Playboy buddy or whatever, just because she's you know, she's eye candy. And even if he hires somebody like, you know, Pence, because he looks like uh, a weatherman from the Midwest with well combed hair. I mean, he just understands what an amazingly visual people we are. There's that famous example during, I think it was Reagan's campaign, where 60 Minutes ran a Reagan campaign ad and showed how the rhetoric of the images was at utter odds with the reality on the ground, and the moment that 60 Minutes aired the footage, the Reagan administration called them up and said, thank you for this unbelievable report, which you guys thought was critical of us. But no one pays attention to words. They pay attention to images. And you guys just ran for us Morning in America visual rhetoric. You fucking idiots. You just did our job for us. And in a way, here we are 40 years later, like obviously a thousand times more that way. I think that Trump profoundly understands how visual that we are. And I don't know. It's really, really amazing, scary performance art magic.
0: Well, guys, we've said it all. Uh, We really have. We fucking nailed it. This was great. And uh, let's do it again sometime.
1: Thanks a lot, Scott. Brad, it's great to see you, man. I hope that we... I had a great time. Thanks so so much,
2: guys.